You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 625, Millie Vanilli on trial, Richard Curtis regrets, Slade as working class heroes, and farewell to Bobby Charlton and Bill Kenwright. That's all coming up after the smithereens and Top of the Pops. One of the most underrated bands in the history of pop music, despite the totally captivating, earwormy nature of that track, no chart action at all when it mm. was released as a single in 1991. 
Um, also found on their album Blow Up the Smithereens and Top of the Pops. Once again, the general public uh, proving themselves to be not the greatest judge of taste and talent ever. Uh, again, new to me because I uh, because it hadn't been here. I wasn't really familiar with it, but that was cracking. I very much enjoyed that. Mm. In the news this week, Kanye West has announced he won't be standing for president in the 2024 <laughs> election. Oh, tearing up my the, ballot paper as I speak, yes. Well, surely, thus, surely, <laughs> leaving the field wide open for a run from Julia Harris. <laughs> I look forward to someone publishing my birth certificate, <laughs> revealing that I was, in fact, uh, born in the Buchanan Hospital in Hastings, which no longer exists. I take that personally. Um, I will not be, therefore, being able to uh, have a run, which I'm sure people will be very disappointed at. Um, I don't I'm know. stressed May- about this. It's disappointing. Maybe somebody like Sarah Silverman could put a pair of glasses on and run in my place. Mm. I'd be happy for them to do that. Anyway, hello, everybody. Last week I went to a book launch in in London's bustling Soho. You get about, Sir T. You you live the high life, and we can just hear about it. Social world, really. And um, I found my I found myself sitting next to Clem Cattini, now Ooh. a hearty, still lively eighty six years old. And hmm. of course, many, particularly younger listeners, will now say Clem who. And so let us recall that Clem is the greatest British session drummer of all time. Mm. He's played on 42 different UK number one That's singles. That's incredible. That is incredible. It is an incredible statistic. Just about every band or artist in the 60s and mm. 70s Clem played on the records. The Kinks, The Hollies, Lou Reed, Paul McCartney, Paul Weller, Long List. Absolutely and incredible. A, a coincidence, I should bump into Clem in, in the week that Millie Vanilli are in the news again. A new documentary mm. about their downfall is released on Paramount+. Plus. Millie Vanilli, they had a run of hits in the 1980s, all fine, until it was revealed that they didn't play on their records. Uh, the balloon went up, there were accusations mm. of fraud, and even their Grammy was revoked. But Jules, when Clem Cattini and others were playing the instruments in the studio for Donovan, the Bay City Rollers, Herman's Hermits, the Bee Gees, it didn't provoke a whisper of protest. No, indeed. Interesting that. Firstly, to track back briefly to your Clem Cattini anecdote, we have mm. to feel sorry for the poor man because he has been portrayed on film. But it just goes to show we can never quite control who we get to portray us on the small screen. He was in the excellent film Telstar. He was portrayed in that. Um uh, if you've not seen this and listeners have not seen this, it is very much worth watching. I think it's excellent. Telling the, the rise and fall of Joe Meek. Um, it was it came out, I think, 2009. It was certainly some films ago, some years ago now. Um, uh, it, it's, like I say, really worth watching. Loads of incredible cameos as well. And what's so good about it is that um, lots of the um, lots of the people in it um, that are portrayed in it then have their have bit parts in it as well. So they don't play themselves, but they play sort of bit parts. So um, so your man Clem Cattini uh, play, plays uh, appearing as himself, but he's playing John Layton's chauffeur. He unfortunately <laughs> is portrayed by uh, James Corden. So our apologies oh, well, to to. Well. To Clem Cattini, at least Chaz, at least old Chaz, Chaz Hodges got um got got portrayed by a uh, Cole Barrett from the Libertines, which was slightly less unfortunate for him. Um, Cole Con O'Neill excellent as Kevin Spacey, so um not as Kevin Spacey, he's excellent as Joe Meek, and Kevin Spacey is also excellent as Meek's business partner, Major Wilfred Banks. So very much a kind of a lots of unexpected people on the small screen. But when it comes to Millie Vanilli, hmm. <laughs> a bit ironic really, as um. 
girl one of their hits was girl you know it's true turns out girl <laughs> you rather know that it isn't really very true which is unfortunate um i remember them being portrayed in an excellent book that we read for my rock and roll book club some years ago called i'm not with the band by uh sylvia patterson i think her name is and uh she was a a, a smash hits journalist in the 80s and 90s she's written for the all the music papers for years and years it's a very very good book and she talks about interviewing millie vanilli in it and how they're very entertaining because their their english is not good shall we say and but they're actually very good at laughing about the fact that they don't know you know that they're, they're just a bit hapless really uh but she likes them very much and is very saddened to learn of the death of one of them as a result of sort of drug addiction which they were rather pushed downhill by the by the kind of you know the scandal of all this although as this this article points out the arista record label executives are all in this documentary going you know not me gov we mm-hmm. didn't know anything about this as the telegraph puts here Anyone with ears and brain cells should have noted the discrepancy between the American voices on the records and the fact that Fabrice was French and Rob had a thick Bavarian accent. Uh, the real villain was Frank Farian, who was the German producer who masterminded the whole thing. He had them lip sync in performances and videos while secretly hiring re- real singers for the recording studio. Um, uh, it's just it's it's you know you end up feeling enormous sympathy for them really they were they they both have rather unhappy childhoods they were sort of scraping by when opportunity knocked i think most people would have would have accepted that call wouldn't they frankly regardless of what was going on you know it, i think a lot of young people from difficult backgrounds would have done exactly the same thing um Part of the problem is the fact that they were prone to hubris. Musically, we are more talented than Paul McCartney, they once declared. I mean, that was always riding a bit for a bit of a fool, wasn't it, really? Having said that, I do feel in these situations that, yes, you know, they shouldn't have done that. That was rather unwise and they were rather asking for trouble by saying things like that. But as always, it's the young, vulnerable people out the front that cop all the flack. And it's the sort of faceless producers that just waft away onto their next money making opportunity, isn't it, really? Um, the one surviving member of Millie Vanilli declined to appear, which I can kind of understand, really. I'm not surprised that they might not necessarily feel they might not get a fair hearing after everything that has happened. Um, yeah, I feel for Millie Vanilli. Um, you know, lots of people over the years. I mean, you know, session musicians are a thing, aren't they? As you rightly point out with Clem Cattini and, of course, the Wrecking Crew, now a celebrated backing band that played in all sorts of different records. Carol Kay is probably one of the best bass players ever, but she's only ever known as Carol Kay from the Wrecking Crew, isn't she, really? She's not known as, you know, a great rock star in her own right. And it's only, I would say, within the last 10, 15 years that the Wrecking Crew has even really been acknowledged as great musicians. There have been some, you know, big ticket documentaries on BBC Four, but that's only relatively recently. For years and years and years, authenticity, quote unquote, was everything. As a result of which, no one was allowed to know about these people behind the curtain, were they? No, that's right. I mean, if if we took, if we said, well, the you know, the, the Wrecking Crew was a scandal, then every, just about every sixties and seventies pop single would have to be cancelled because exactly Ringo, say, Ringo Starr doesn't play on on um, on the first Beatles, the first couple of Beatles songs, does he? It's, uh, no, it's he doesn't. The sessioner that does it instead. Andy White, yes, can yeah. plays for him, yes. Um, well, quite, yeah. No, I mean, the Wrecking Crew, of course, stepped in for the Beach Boys, the Birds, mm. the Monkeys, um, Simon and Garfunkel, Mumbles and Papas, Elvis, 
um, out the association. Um, so both over here and in the States. I think the, the point being that, that um, recording studio time here and in the States was so expensive mm. and so was tape that there just wasn't yeah. the time or budget to wait while some sort of nervous 19-year-old struggled to play a guitar solo or keep perfect time on the drum. So you pull in some experienced and indeed fantastic players, as you say, like Carol Kay um, and Hal Blaine, to ensure it you know, could mm. be done as swiftly as possible. That, that was the motivation for it, I suppose. Absolutely. Whether, whether one thinks that is... Uh, it just didn't seem an outrage. I don't know. In the yeah. 60s, it didn't seem to sort of really battle too much. I think we kind of knew that, you know, the Beach Boys or the Monkeys... Yeah. Yes. monkeys weren't you know playing the, the instruments on the no. recordings exactly I don't think it really i don't seem to remember people went oh my lord this is the you know the biggest outrage of the of the 20th century but it's hard not to feel sorry for the two milli vanilli chaps mm. so popularis and fabrice uh, morvan and you mentioned that daily telegraph um mm. article this week and I, I there was one phrase in it that i thought summed it up perfectly uh, the only scandal is is that the music industry got rich off these two and then yes. put them to the wolves. Oh, absolutely, exactly. yes. And everyone, everyone is like the you know the the record execs. Everyone thought it was someone else that had done it, and it wasn't yeah. them, and they'd never had anything to do with it. it was these poor guys were just you know like you say le- left or rot essentially, and one of them very yes. sadly did. So uh, a good point that you make about the sort of the wrecking crew, and, and and people you know wouldn't have minded if people had minded though. I would have pointed out that perhaps the same people that were holding up all these bands as you know rock and roll heroes. The thing about being rock and roll is that if you were too drunk to go to the studio the next day and well, studio time is expensive, someone's got to do it, haven't they? Right, so right. so I hope the same people that, you know, lion-eyed rock stars are not the same people that criticise them when they are too rock and roll to be able to play on their own records and we have to get talented session musicians in for a fraction of the price, I would point out. Coming next, Richard Curtis has a rethink. And mm-hmm. were Slade really Britain's first great working class mm. rock band? That's right after Say She She.
first to knock Spotify like anybody else <laughs> because they don't pay people enough money for using it. And I take your excellently made point on podcast Passim, Sir T, that, you yes. know, in some cases they wouldn't be able to sell enough records anyway. But in other cases, I think there is a fair point. But um, occasionally, the spot, or, or more often than not nowadays, I would say, the Spotify algorithm will chuck up stuff at me that I wouldn't have heard elsewhere. I might hear it on Six Music, but equally I might not. And um, and I I love the stuff that it throws at me, and this is no exception. That's what's slightly creepy about it, really. That it that you know it works out what you're listening to and finds things like it. And it found me this, and I liked it very much. Um, so the opening track from their 2023 album Silver, so out very recently, came out at the end of September. The band is Say She She, and that's called Reeling. Well, new to me as well. Absolutely love it. It's a sort of superb 1980s kind of Tom Tom mm. Club vibe to it. Really yes. enjoyed that very that's much. Really, that's really well well put. And I, I suspect that the reason that that was thrown at me is because I've been listening to a lot of Jessie Ware recently and oh. her um, her most recent album, which is it's just called That Feels Good, which is like a sort of a disco album. So if you like this, then I would recommend Jessie Ware's last album as well for similar vibes. As the number of jobs in the arts uh, diminishes, there seems to be mm. one role that's thriving. People employed to rewrite literature to ensure it's more suitable for, <laughs> for a, a woke age. Um, publishers are tumbling over themselves to alter what might be deemed as offensive language in mm. the modern era. And, you know, whether this is right or wrong is, is quite the debate. But nevertheless, virtually all of Roald Dahl's books, Ian Fleming's Adventures of James Bond, they've all been recently republished in new non-offensive editions. Some will say it's cultural vandalism. Others that it's simply being sensitive to new younger readers with different values to the 1950s and 60s. Every few years, um, uh, I give myself a little nostalgic treat and reread some of the Enid Blyton books from when I was like mm. eight or nine years old. I love them. Um, in Enid Blyton's Mystery of series, the lead character is a teenage boy called Fatty Trotville. And here oh, is the problem. You see, this yes. is, frankly, he likes eating lots of buns and macaroons <laughs> in the village tea rooms. However... In the latest editions, it's said that his nickname comes simply from his initials, Frederick Algernon Trotville. And it's got nothing to do with his size. That is not referred to at all. So is it wokery gone mad? Well, screenwriter Richard Curtis has said this week that he regrets his depiction of women and comments about body size in his movies. The curious thing is that he says he didn't feel his jokes, inverted commas, were malicious at the time, but now he does. Um, Jules, are we are we right to re-examine and, and crucially change these issues from the past? Well, I'd, so it's it's interesting, this, isn't it? And I, I take a lot of the points of what people say, that things are written in context at the time. However, mm. what I would point out is that, and this is where I'm still clutching to your bold assertion that I remain young for this podcast. Mm, indeed you um, do. Where, thank you very much. In which case, this is going to help support my argument. Excellent. Uh, which is mm. basically that if something has a lifetime and be when I was a teenager, I do not consider it to have been that long ago, frankly. I was mm. only, I was 18, but 20 years ago, Seti, which is not even a whole generation, I would no. say. And you know, I remember rolling my eyes at the fat jokes in Notting Hill in 1999 at the time, frankly. So, um, so I, yes, I, I, I think that actually 
it's one thing i mean i find the stuff from the 70s and benny hill chasing people about to be tedious now i must mm. say but that was the 70s so it was 50 years ago there is an argument the early 70s that you could say there is a contextual argument that i don't think is there in the late uh, 90s and early noughties of some of these films and actually i think i admire richard curtis in this sense because i think it can take a lot for someone to look back and go, do you know what? If I was going to do that again now, I wouldn't. I was, I, I think it was wrong to do that, and that is a much braver thing to do, I think, than go, oh, it was, it was of its time. Everyone was like it, you know. It's, you know, is it, what it was to say. No, it wasn't. It wasn't good. Um, it was, you know, the jokes aren't, you know, the jokes aren't funny anymore. I think to be, to be, uh, to be sort of sorry for unkindness is not a bad trait, I think. And particularly mm. as interestingly, so you spoke about your Frederick Albert Thomas, your, or whatever his name was, your, your, your <laughs> Frederick Fre- Algernon Trotterville. That's it. You know, I, you know the one. Well, either way, it makes FAT, doesn't it? So, so, um, <laughs> but he was a chap. What's interesting is that when you watch these films, Richard Curtis films, and indeed at the sort of the, I think they were slightly post the Ladette era, weren't they? They're sort of the lads era. But it's always women who are, if you pardon yes. the pun, the butt of the joke, aren't they? Rather than the, rather than the, um, rather than men. And the fact that it is a combination of a sort of chubbiness and women makes me think that actually um and also what's an interesting point i think that i, I was thinking about when i read this article because i saw this article in the, early in the week was that um it's an he's so bridget jones which is one of the things referenced here where bridget jones is obsessed about how fat she is um you can slightly less for this in that it wasn't him that wrote it the book was written by a woman but what's interesting is that when it's written in the book there's a sort of a slight self-loathingness to the character writing it. It's a bit different writing it than when it's adapted by a man, I think. And I I could be remembering this wrong, and I'll happily take sort of correction from our listeners if I am. But I remember that being the the, the tubbiness and her feeling she was huge being made more of a thing of in the film. And the sort of the huge knickers are quite a large part of the publicity, weren't they? That Mm. clip is endlessly shown on things more of an issue in the film that was made by a man than it was in the in the book that was written by a woman. So actually, I'm glad that, that Richard Curtis has reflected on that. There is no reason why people can't reflect on things. Also, he makes an even better point. He was also asked, and this is his daughter that was interviewing him, whether he regretted the lack of people of colour in Notting Hill. And he said... Yes, I wish I'd been ahead of the curve because I came from a very undiverse school and bunch of of university friends. I think that I've hung on on the diversity issue to the feeling that I wouldn't know how to write those parts. I think I was just sort of stupid and wrong about that. Um, I really admire him for saying that and for saying, you know, I made mistakes on this. I was I was wrong to do that. I think it's not some people might say he's, you know, kowtowing to some woke agenda. I don't think he is at all. I think to look back on things and to say, well, I wouldn't do that now. And, you know, and I, you know, I, I regret it. I I very much admire it. I think it's a good thing. I like it more than I like his films, to be honest. So um, so I'm I'm quite a fan of what I keep singing to the tune of Miss Otis regrets in my in my in my head. Richard, <laughs> Kurt, Mr. Curtis regrets. And I admire yes. him for it. I can't take uh, the moral high ground. I have regrets. Mm. I I um, wrote for Spitting Image. Yes. And now I look back at some of the portrayals that we collectively uh, mm. wrote and some of my own 
um, scripts that I wrote for for it. And, you know, I think about Roy Hattersley, Edwina Curry, Princess Anne. And I think we bought, went over the border into cruel mm. instead of funny. So, I, as I say, I can't... Uh, stand on top of Mount Olympus uh, holding but much, on but, that. But much better that you're in that position than you are in the position, like, say, John Cleese, of continuing to defend oh, gosh, your, your yeah, past yeah. mistakes. I think it's, you know, there is an argument that things culture... And, and satire, I think, is a particularly difficult area and we've spoken about this before i think on the pod mm. in that it's always a fine line isn't it it's always a fine line between what extent it is right Indeed. and proper to send people in positions of well, power up yeah this is a this is a very good point because you know um a, a, a lot of the, richard curtis movies my stuff is speaking images say carry carry a lot of issues and i do wonder and why and how we didn't feel it and we didn't notice it at the time mm. it wasn't that we were thinking oh gosh you know in, in times to come people are going to yes. look back at this and have a go at this. and yet it was all in plain sight so i i wonder would we have been vilified indeed at the time um either mr curtis or myself as funny mm. duddies and lacking a sense of humor if we had you know sort of complained mm. or even brought these jokes um you know with reined it all in you know and, that, and, and that's a really good point i think but mm. I, I think i would make the point back to that i i won't sort of quiz you too much on it now but just just sort of thinking about how diverse those writers rooms were that you worked in mm. what was the range of experience and there's always a, a, a big argument for so i'm involved in some equality stuff in my work and there's always a, a, an argument for equality not just for equality's sake but there's always there's, there's studies been done i think and proof that having a sort of equality and having a more diverse and representative sort of decision-making body can often result in better decisions because people with different experiences mm. can consider different factors as a result of which it might well be, as Richard Curtis says, and like you say, that nobody objected at the time because everybody was the same as each other, weren't they? Everybody had that same... And we all have a narrow... Most of us have a narrow worldview in the sense that we human beings are unless we make a conscious effort not to be are inclined to club together in gangs of similar people aren't we really we might work in similar places you know move in similar circles as a result and actually you end up with better decision making so i would use the example someone near to me um the town where i am there was a an attempt to do rock and roll sort of style blue plaques celebrating local uh, sort of musicians or, or, or musicians that had a significant local connection so even if they weren't here they'd meant they'd lived here for some way for some years um the first one was a plaque for polystyrene who we've mentioned previously mm. who lived here for some years and her parents I, i'm not sure if her parents are still with us actually but they were living here still fairly recently around down the road from me and you know it was unveiled and there was a lot of excitement and you know it's, it's really great that it's there i think i think it's fantastic and then the next one that was revealed was for John Martin. So somebody said, yes, but John Martin was notoriously violent towards mm. women. And the worst thing about this was when it was put to the board that had decided, it wasn't so much that they'd gone, oh, well, they, it, it, what was so sort of unfortunate about it was they hadn't turned around and gone, oh, well, we thought about that, but we thought that actually he made art and there are a lot of people from that, that period that are problematic, which I might not have agreed with, but you could have seen the argument. They had never even considered it. 
Oh, they were. They nice. never even thought about it. And the reason they hadn't. Well, he put his wife I in suspect, hospital. Well, exactly. Yeah. I suspect the reason why it hadn't occurred to them was they were. They were. As far as I'm aware, the people I knew that were involved in that process were all men of a certain age and a certain profile. And I don't think they did it maliciously. The thought just didn't occur to them. And that's why I always think. Well, if you do have a more diverse group of people i'm not saying that only the the, the only people should that, that any sort of people of color should par- care about those issues i'm not saying that only women should care about women's issues but if you've got those sorts of voices on a on a decision making body you're more likely to get a diversity of thought and for someone to go just to someone to say hang on have you thought about this and i suspect the people involved people involved were horrified by the sort of and, and you know and the whole thing went very quiet and i don't think there have been any blue plaques since rather sadly but i don't think that they I think they were horrified by it, but I think the mortifying thing was that it had never been considered. So actually, I'm always a fan of making decision-making bodies diverse because the more diverse a group of experiences you have, the more the less likely that you will miss points like that. I think in, on diversity, that if we um, just think about comedy uh, mm. shows that I wrote for in the seventies, eighties, nineties. I don't and remember. it's so interesting to have you talking about this, by the way. Can I just say that? I always joke about how experienced you've been in your career, but you were actually there. So, yeah, so it's really interesting to hear from you on this. Well, I don't recall any ever coming across a person of colour, um, mm. to be honest, which is, you know, again, quite extraordinary to say today. Did, did you come across many women in your well, rising I was, career? Yes. Um, yes. Main, the majority were men, but we had Debbie Barham. Oh, yes, um, I'm, thinking of of, I'm thinking of writing for, say, Weekending um, mm. and say spitting image pick those two as uh mm. sort of examples um dawn french and um yes, Jennifer Saunders and mel and sue were also mm. on those shows um so there were women um but it was a majority of men and yes. mostly um no people of color so mm. that that doesn't reflect terribly well looking back um a chap called daryl Eastley has a book mm. out this week. It's entitled "Whatever Happened to Slade When mm. the Whole World Went Crazy with a e- <laughs> e- As one has to has to contractually spell it. Indeed. Uh, way too long a title, but putting that aside, in a review of this book in the in the um, papers this week, the the, uh, the uh, writer Ian Winwood suggests that mm. Slade were Britain's first and possibly last great working class rock band, and again, as someone who was around at the time, I'm mm. So this isn't my memory at all. <laughs> Slade, Slade were sort of enveloped into the sort of 72 to 74 glam rock yes. era. I mean, briefly, they wore braces and Dr. Martins, but the abiding image of Slade is top of the pops with them wearing shiny, glittery outfits and noddy, wearing, mm. noddy holder wearing that top hat covered in mirrors. So Jules Slade, they weren't working class heroes. They were just glam rockers with tinsel and bad spelling. Well, well, I mean, that's that's a, a, a typically elegant dismissal and I'm very much enjoying it. However, I, I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily objecting to the fact that they were working class necessarily. What I do object to the fact is that, they, that A, they were the first working class big rock band and B, that they were the last working class big it's rock band. I would say the Beatles were probably the, the first big, the first big, you know, uh, uh, what well, you might argue that perhaps a couple of them were in semi-detached land, but cons- 
compared to what had gone before, Ringo Starr grew up in what was pretty abject poverty, really, I would say, in in the Dingle in Liverpool. And none of the Beatles came from backgrounds that you would necessarily describe as flush, or indeed, even if they were a little bit better off, not particularly stable either when you think about John Lennon's backgrounds or or sort of all traditional. So I object to the fact that Slade were the first big rock working class rock band. I don't think they were. And also, I object to the fact that they were the last. It depends how you're defining rock. A lot of scar people came from very working class backgrounds, I would say. And also, I think an argument for the last big working class rock band was Oasis, frankly. So I I really don't think they were. I mean, for all that people might have issues with Oasis, you can't argue with the fact that A, they were enormous for a while and B, they they were very working class. I mean, admittedly, I mean, you might argue that the Gallagher brothers came from, you know, a part of Burnage, which is not quite moth side when it comes to Manchester. But compared, you know, compared to the to the sort of the the, the rest of the of, of the of the industry, you would say that they probably were relatively working class. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Slater are, are I do think they are rather working class, actually, I, just because they're glam and they, as this as this article put it beautifully, looked like an explosion in a vomit factory, which is, again, an excellent line. Um, I, I, you know, it, it, the putting on makeup does not necessarily change your class, I don't think. So I'm uh, I'm fine. And do you remember we watched the Slater Lied film as well oh, yes, um, some time fun. ago didn't we which mm. was fun and was quite good actually and so so yes i'd say that there is an argument for them being working class a lot of those but then not the last i mean they come from the midlands don't they stayed and actually mm. i remember watching one of those funny little things i have on sky which is basically a few music journalists reading out bits of wikipedia but is nonetheless quite good none because you know they still have some footage on and they have one about heavy metal british heavy metal coming from the black country and as they pointed out the reason that it was called heavy metal is that a lot of these bands like black sabbath worked in factories it was literally the sound of people hitting things in their workplace so i think that there is not a very strong argument for state being the last great bit great big british working class rock band and like we say you know i i would say that bands like the beatles probably were the first weren't they really i i you know I don't have an issue with them being working class, but I, I do have an issue with them being the one and only. I certainly agree. I mean, we could look back and say, as you say, the Beatles, the Who, and mm. uh, of course, then later on Oasis, the Verve. So it's a bit of a strange argument. Absolutely. Um, there's more to come as we look back mm. on the lives of Bobby Charlton, mm. Bill Kenwright and Matthew Perry. That's next after She's in Parties.
appearing live around the UK all throughout November. Um, they're from the wild hinterlands of Colchester and mm. this is a track released at the tail end of last year actually. A very spirited single from She's in Parties that was Cherish. Very good that and uh, like you say um, always, a, always a, a fan of bands from Colchester the great Blur of course hailing cool. from there originally so it's a rich lineage Colchester but yes I like that very much it was new on me but I enjoyed it. Um, bear with me here. This story will lead us to Bobby Charlton. Okay, I'm um, gonna um, I'm gonna put a cushion behind my back just to get myself comfortable. Thank sit, you. Sit back for a moment, indeed. Gotcha. In, in, in May 1968, I was a 12 year old boy unhappily attending a private school, um, where the where the teaching staff largely consisted of bullying sadistic priests with unhealthy interests in young boys. And I was glad I'm not. I was not there, frankly. Yeah, you, you have painted a picture which which I'm glad I was not a part of and I feel like I should be playing our tune over the top of this as well I'm sorry that you had to go through yeah, that it was awful I went to school reluctantly um, but at least on the 29th of May mm. 1968 I knew that cheer would come that evening as it was the European Cup final it would be mm. live on television it was at Wembley with Benfica facing Manchester United well it's well, not a love that sounds very exciting sounds good doesn't it but it got better because suddenly and it's the most peculiar story suddenly on that morning at school we were all pulled out of our classes and asked mm. to gather on one of the lawns uh, at the school mm. and out of the school chapel emerged the manchester united football team wow they'd um asked to attend mass on the day of the big game and on that morning somehow <laughs> our school chapel was chosen and mm. uh, the players stayed behind and Pat Crerand, captain, took mm. a microphone and gave us all a speech and we gave them three cheers for Manchester Excellent. United. That's really and, cool. Uh, I like that. And also it just goes to show that, um, that when we think about big cities that have two football teams in them, some are, are sort of split just by geography, but of course some were, were split by religion, weren't they? Manchester well, United were traditionally the Catholic Catholics, team, weren't they, of Manchester? Indeed. Um, so despite being a Chelsea supporter, I was delighted later mm. that day when they beat Benfica 4-1 to win the European Cup. Bobby Charlton scored two goals. And of course, all of this comes back um, to us because it came back into my mind. That story came back to my mind this week, George, where we learned that Bobby Charlton had died at the age of 86. 
absolutely. I was sorry to hear this, although he, of course, had been unwell for some time. Mm. But, um, but yeah, like you say, an incredible generation of footballers. And, of course, like you say, I think there was a lot of delight when Manchester United won the uh, won yes. the European Cup in 1968 from neutrals as well, because, of course, of the Munich air disaster that had, yes. that had occurred some years before it. One of the biggest tragedies, I think, of, of, of the 20th century. It was just... It was. It's like thinking now that you know uh, what was so sad about it was the fact that so many of the players were so young. We never got to see what what Duncan Edwards would be capable of doing. You know, it was it was a terrible thing. Um, the returns that I've mentioned before were big fans of the Guardian cartoonist, um, who is really really excellent. Um, who's um who David Squires, who has published books and things, and he did a beautiful tribute to Bobby Charlton this week and how sort of writing quotes and how the Munich air disasters will never quite left him really, even moments of happiness. There's always this kind of literal survivor's guilt, I suppose. And it's just incredible to think what he achieved. The fact that, you know, he he survived the Munich air disaster and then subsequently won the World Cup with England in 1966 and the European Cup, as you say, in 1968. Um, just Just phenomenal, really, just to think that, just to think that he just got on with his life in the same way actually and, and I was tempted to say oh would you know would that happen now yes it did with Andy Murray actually surviving Dunblane I, that that's the mm. person that I would think of as a comparison in the modern era and of course Andy Murray pilloried early on for being you know um um photogenic and you know sort of not great in dealing with the media and things like that and being dour I'm not surprised he was dour Frank I think we'd all be dour if we had that that mm. start in life and it, and it's it's much credit to to, to, to Bobby Charlton that he kind of got on with his life in such an incredible way really so so of course always remember for winning the, the world cup with with england and in 1966 and for winning the european cup with manchester united um went on did he, he go on to manage am i right in thinking i can't remember he if did. he Not did sure if it was successfully mm. yes but, but Bobby uh, Charlton yeah. did go on to manage, I think it was Preston North End, yes, and it didn't that's work right. out terribly well. No, I'm sorry to hear that, but still an incredible player. And just, you know, like I say, I just can't admire him enough for having lived through lived through the Munich air disaster, really. That's, that's just to have gone on to achieve things after that is like nothing else, really, I think. Um, I ask you to bear with me with another very quick mm. small anecdote. On, I've got another on pillow, it's fine. This is a two-pillow anecdote. It is, um, yes. <laughs> five short years after that first encounter, mm. so uh, this would be now on the 28th of April 1973, I was at Stamford Bridge and saw Bobby Charlton's last ever game for Manchester United. Mm. And th- this is such... Um, an evocation of the age because mm. the Chelsea chairman, uh, Brian Mears, presented Bobby yes. Charlton with an engraved silver cigarette case. <laughs> wow. Imagine that today. Yeah, here, have a, you know, I have a few things. Exactly. I don't, yeah. I don't think that was. In a world of, you know, whole wheat pasta meals 90 minutes before a yes. game, I'm not really sure that would Quite. that would be a thing. Now, though, having said that, um, I can never remember this guy's surname, so I'll look it up quickly. But um, I I play in a, a sort of I do a lot of quizzing, as I think people know, look, regularly listen to the show know. And I play in a, a pop culture league where you have um where you have um sort of a sets of four questions. So each of there are four players, and each you get a question that's in the same quad, and they're usually on the same topic. Um, 
this this uh, fairly recently um speaking of uh, sort of not terribly athletic things one might consume a sort of prior to a football match <laughs> peter crouch wrote in his autobiography i think about his former teammate benoit asuikoto who apparently would always turn up to before matches he would always turn up with a carrier bag with the same four things in that would be the sort of mm. way in which he would prepare for the match so if we want to be like Benoit Asuikoto this is what as as right. finely tuned athletes we need to turn up with um you need to turn up with your carrier bag city to prepare for the game mm. you have a packet of crisps um a flask of hot chocolate um a can of coca-cola <laughs> and a croissant and that's what he would without <laughs> fail turn up with before a match when playing with Peter Crouch every single time in a carrier bag so maybe nowadays you wouldn't get a cigarette case but you might get a carrier bag with some coke and some crisps in it Amazing. I would enjoy that 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 um Bobby Charlton's last game for Man U at Chelsea was a really <laughs> peculiar game Chelsea mm. won one nil in it it was a scrappy affair but Bobby Charlton whether through I don't know emotion weariness he spent the whole whole game haranguing the referee um to the point where eventually and I think most reluctantly he booked him for dissent but there's a a denouement to that even because again something that wouldn't happen today with all the media Mm. intensity the referee John John Yates didn't send in his report to the Football Association, so that booking was never recorded oh, and didn't ruin Bobby John's last game for Manchester United. That is interesting. Touch from the that referee. is a classy touch. That, that's an, a, a sort of unwarrantedly classy mm. touch, I think, really. And it says good things about him, doesn't it, really? Mm. I completely agree. God, how strange. And, and not what one would associate Bobby Charlton with, but an excellent footballer nonetheless. Maybe, like you say, it might have been emotion. Indeed. Another football connection, um, as Bill Kenwright, uh, chairman of Everton Football Club, also left us this week. Firstly, an actor, and then one of our most successful theatre producers Mm. and impresarios. About 10 years ago, I was at the same table as Bill Kenwright. Well, this was at lunch at Chelsea before a game. And I have to say, this was, I said, about 10 years ago, he came across as a really lovely humble man and this has been echoed by one of my friends this week who reminded me about how Bill uh, Kenwright went way beyond expectations by getting him um, club Wembley seats when Brighton reached the FA Cup semi-finals a few years ago Um, and car park tickets tickets for all his family and his grandson and everything and this Mm. kindness and um sort of happy memories though were rather rattled by the terrible way he's been treated mm. by fans of his own club now bill bill was rich ish but not a billionaire which you have to be if you're going to invest mm. in a premier league club in the 2020s and everton fans got on his back big time and it's a shame jules mm. that his last years were spent dodging abuse and worse from people in the stands at goodison park Terrible. I completely agree with you. And it just goes to show how football has changed. And I think we would both probably agree, not necessarily for the better, Mm. in that Bill Cameron is the previous generation of football club owners, isn't he? And that it's people that I'm not saying that he wasn't it wasn't a rich man's sort of plaything in the sense that it was a leisure pursuit for him and he was rich. But having said that, it was it was much more 
it was much more of a sort of a passion project, I think, than it is for just as a, as a money spinning opportunity. Now, let's see how wrong the Glazers have gone at Manchester United, for example. Let's see how depressing it is that the Qataris and the Saudis seem to be wanting to buy football at the moment. It's it's when you compare it to that, Bill Kenwright, the Bill Kenwrights of the world almost seem like the sort of the good old days, don't they, really? Mm. And that they were genuinely trying to run the club in a sustainable way. One of the clubs that I, those fortunes I follow, um, I think I've spoken about Lewis Community Football Club on, oh, the, yes, on, the, indeed, on, the, yes. on the podcast previously. But there's a huge debate that is engulfing the club at the moment in that a consortium has put in a bid to buy the women's side and mm. and invest several million pounds in it. Of course, the, 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 the Spaniard in the works, as John Lennon would have it, there are Two. Firstly, the fact that Lewis is a community-owned football club, people buy shares to of thirty pounds or so to, to you know to, to be a part of the community-owned club. To if you're selling out your women's team, to what extent are you still a community-owned club? And the second issue, of course, is that they're not very open about who their investors are. This we were told we would have this information. We still don't have this information, and now we're voting. Um, and I, um, Lewis are Equality FC, so they're meant to be. So they meant they're the only team in the country apparently that play their their women and the men the same. And there's been this huge debate, and it's all got very nasty, as you can mm. imagine, between the two sides over whether to accept this, you know, investment or not. And it makes me sad actually, that as someone that loves women's football, as people know, I do not want to support this because the argument is, you know, always community owned, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is, is that the reason that the the women's team are doing rather well, by the way, they're not in the top tier, but I think they're in the one below. They 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 had a they played Manchester United in the FA Cup, their FA Cup run last season, and acquitted themselves very well by all accounts and got a goal against them. Which to get a goal against Mary Earps when your players are not necessarily mm. professional is really not a bad really not a bad outcome. But um, but the reality is, is that the club has been propped up by directors giving large personal donations. So you could argue that it's not, it is community owned, but actually when it comes to money, it's been a few individuals that have been giving them money and that actually the club has not been community sustained for years. My big objection is that you don't know who the owners are. And so actually when you think about it, at least we least people knew who Bill Kenwright was. Yes, he wasn't putting in billions, but at least the club was sustainably run. I suspect the Manchester United fans that might have encouraged the Glazers at the time have now realised that it's just ended up being a vehicle upon which they can service their debts. And Manchester United are in a real, real mess now as a result. And actually, Everton did very well for a club of Everton's size for some years when they were managed by the likes of David Moyes and they did manage to finish in the top four but they were doing that on a sustainable basis which one has to admire Bill Kemwright for doing that and it might well be that once Everton you know once they get bought out by all you know the sort of the rich owners they might well find themselves in the same mess as Manchester United have found themselves you can buy success but at what price? Yes, I rather feel the stress of trying to raise funds for Everton as they build their mm. new stadium mm. um, a few miles away. It must have been quite a load to bear. Yes, which is terrible. Given <sighs> man, he seemed as well. Like you say, I'd seen him on things and heard him interview on things before. Mm. And he just seemed like a very nice man that bought a football club because he was passionate about football and was trying to run it properly. And I have every respect and admiration for him for that. And like you say, I'm very sad and sorry that the twilight of his years was spent trying to dodge abuse from Everton fans that have no idea how lucky they are. 
Yes. Also very sad news in the last day or so, we heard of the death of mm. Matthew Perry at only 54 years old. Yeah, and absolutely. I certainly don't mean this disrespectfully or unkindly, but there was always an element of uncertainty about yes. it that led one to believing, you know, he may not be around for a lengthy mm. lifespan. Terribly sad, Jules. And another example of great stardom being meaningless, when you're at home on the sofa and inhabiting yourself, whether that sofa is, you know, held up by bricks mm. in a mobile home in Baltimore or a, or a luxury home in Beverly Hills, you've still got to deal with life as it is in front of you. Absolutely. Agreed. And it's funny, isn't it? It's like my, my girlfriend told me, had heard on the, or read, I think, on the sort of scene on the Guardian website when I went off to make tea on, on Sunday morning that he'd passed away and said that. And I was at once sort of surprised and saddened, but not surprised, really, mm. like you say. And he had that sort of strange thing whereby... Because he was frozen in time, like all of the people in Friends, all of those six are sort of frozen in time. One could say the most successful um, of them all has been Jennifer Aniston, who's had a very, I mean, mm. for a while, I have to say, and this sounds very offensive, I don't mean it to be. She was she, she was in the sort of film where I ended up using her as a barometer. If she was in a film, I would make my mind up not to watch it because it simply wouldn't appeal to me because she appeared in lots of romantic comedies for a while, which just really weren't my bag. Having said that, she did go on to appear in something called um horrible bosses i think it was called but she was excellent in she was she was good in a few indie films actually she was in something called the good girl which she was excellent in that so i i can't criticize her too much and some of them gone to david schwimmer's done some directing matt leblanc but in top gear for some time as well somewhat unexpectedly but also in episodes and some other things and joey was fairly successful i think as well for a spin-off all of them have gone on to sort of do some things but um but Matthew Perry, because he did do some acting, which was excellent, but um, like all of those people, they will always be remembered for friends before they are anything else. As a result of which, part of me couldn't believe, said, oh, 54 is such a young age, but also part of me couldn't believe he was 54 because mm. I still see him as being in his late 20s and early 30s because that's how old he was in Friends, wasn't it? So yes. so in a way, he's sort of trapped in that in time. Like you say, an unhappy life with addiction, which... Um, which put it this way, if you do have problems in your life already, the magnifying glass of fame can only make them larger, can't it, really? It's, it's not, fame's not a great way for, 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 for stopping fires burning, is it, really, when it comes down to it? So, so sorry to hear of his loss. Very gifted comedian, excellent in Friends, which, again, part of that and some of the fat jokes, etc. And that has not aged very aspects of that has not aged well. But um, it was rather sad that one of the things that was quoted when he passed away was that he'd said that he'd suffered such substance addiction and abuse problems when he was in Friends that he said he would watch. He would see himself in a season of Friends. And depending on what he looked like in that season, he could tell you what his abuse problem was at that time. So there was one season where it was painkillers. He said that he couldn't remember having recorded a whole series of Friends because he was, was sort of so out of it, which is terrible, really. Such a shame. But apparently, by, by all the sort of accounts that I really know, he has passed away. He'd done an awful lot to help other people with addiction. He'd written a book a few years ago. He was a pretty prolific sponsor for people that were going through Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think had genuinely done a lot to try and help people that had suffered from the same problems as him, which is admirable, really. Not, not many people do that, I think. So sorry to hear of his loss sorry for the troubles that he experienced in his life but friends is however problematic it is when we watch it now it was the biggest thing in, it was one of the biggest things in the world wasn't it for some mm-hmm. years and it's a huge cultural contribution and my thoughts go as i said to michelle my thoughts go to the the other five people in 
the other five friends simply because it's a bit, it must have been like being in the Beatles for a while, mustn't it? In that there are only, <laughs> yes. uh, or yes. in the Spice Girls or anything mm. like that, in some world, Good big point. sort of world conquering thing, there's only a few of you that were there and that know what that's mm. like, isn't it? And so I, I feel for the five of them that had lost their sixth person because, you know, it's it also a little bit like when the World Cup winners, uh, the England World Cup winners are all gradually passing on, when, you know, the, the veterans, the First and Second World Wars are passing on you gradually lose everyone around you who know what who knows what it's like to have lived through that so my thoughts with the other five from that that set of six by the way with the um the death of Bobby Charlton that only leaves Jeff Hurst uh, goodness me wow um Matthew Perry he released a memoir last year called Friends Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing which went into some detail about detail about his almost mm. lifelong situation with drink and drugs and he refers in it to drinking 14 triple shots of vodka and 55 prescription painkillers every day. Wow. Um, that is, it, not, I mean, I'm so, it, part of me, now you put it like that, part of me is surprised he lived as long as he did. It, really. ex, it, exactly. Terrible. I'm sorry. And the, the fact that he seems to have been sober for two and a half years since uh, he wrote that book, that just that makes his early death even more sad, really. Mm, absolutely. Because, you know, he seemed to have got through the worst of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening this week. Good to have you along. I very much agree. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being with us as always and enjoying uh, Terence's showbiz life with me. Oh. It's been great. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Unlike Millie Vanilli, it really will be Juliet's voice you hear on her radio shows this it, week. It will be, yes. Girl, you know it is true. It is really me speaking to you, doing lots of words on Thursday evenings and smooth sailing on, on Sunday evenings on noiseboxradio.com. So please join me there and then. The song you've you've picked to play us out, again, it was new to me. But when I heard it this afternoon, what an affecting track this is. Yes, it's lovely, isn't it? I mean, like you say, very sad, very affecting. Of course, the the increasingly fraught world we find ourselves living in did make me think about sort of war and anti-war and protest songs uh, in the last few days. And I first came across this on a CD, and I and I found I've played a few songs on this, I think, on the pod over the years, called "A Break from the Norm," and it right. was a, 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 a compilation CD of songs that have been sung by Norman Cook, aka Fatboy Slim, on his records over the years. And this was sampled. The sort of the the backing to this was sampled by him on a song called "Demons" that he released um, with Macy Gray singing over the top. And I, I thought about picking that song because I think it's excellent in its own mm. right. But I thought I'd go with this partly for the anti-war sentiment and also because I just think it's so good and Bill Withers is an artist that's very much appreciated I think for a very limited selection of songs you will probably hear Lovely Day by him most of the most of the time with occasional airings for Lean On Me and Ain't No Sunshine but I think this is really excellent it's a wonderful live performance um, based on sort of protest and opposition to the Vietnam War um, this is Bill Withers and this is I Can't Write Left Handed we recorded this song on October the 6th. Since then, the war has been declared over. If you're like me, you'll remember it like anybody remembers any war. One big drag. A lot of people write songs about wars and government. Very social things. But I think about young guys who were like I was when I was young. I had no more idea about any government, 
or political things or anything. And I think about those kind of young guys now who all of a sudden somebody comes up and they're very law-abiding. So if somebody says go, they don't ask any questions, they just go. And I can remember not too long ago seeing a young guy with his right arm gone. Just got back. And I asked him how he was doing. He said he was doing all right now, but he had thought he was going to die. He said getting shot at didn't bother him. It was getting shot that shook him up. And I tried to put myself in his position. Maybe he cried. Maybe he said, I can't write left-handed. Would you please write a letter? Write a letter to my mother. Tell her to tell, tell her to tell, tell her to tell her family lawyer. Trying to get, trying to get a deferment for my younger brother. Tell the Reverend Harris to pray for me, Lord, Lord, Lord. I don't believe I'm gonna live to get much older. Strange little man over here in Vietnam. I ain't, I ain't never seen. Bless his heart, I ain't never done nothing to. He done shot me in my shoulder. You know we talked about fighting, fighting every day. And looking through rosy, rosy colored glasses. I must admit it seemed exciting. In a way oh, But something that they Overlooked to tell me Lord 
Reverend Caleb, Caleb, the Reverend Harris. And tell him to ask the Lord to do some good things for me. Listening to a Parish Council production.